It must be Thursday. Welcome to Learning Unwrapped, the podcast about your most important life skill, learning. My guest today was once a shy student who feared speaking out in class, but that didn't stop her from attending Howard University, Georgetown University, Harvard University, and Northwestern University, where she earned a law degree. And she went on to become a best-selling children's book author with over 20 years of publishing experience. Her classic picture book, I Love My Hair, An Ode to Black Childhood and Natural Beauty, is a favorite among readers around the world. We'll talk about that and other exciting writing adventures of hers today. She currently lives in Chicago with her husband and the ghosts of her two <laughs> beloved cats, Manhattan and Summer. Please welcome Natasha Anastasia Tarpley. Hi, everyone. And hi, Nancy. It's great to be back. It's uh, great to have you back. Yes. You have written such amazing books, all of which should be present in classrooms everywhere. I Love My Hair, Bippity Bop Barbershop, The Harlem Charade, JoJo's First Flight, Girl in the Mirror, and so many more. Your most recent picture book, written during the pandemic, is The Me I Choose to Be, with photographic images by Regis and Karen Bethancourt. The message affirms the power of Black kids to choose who and what they want to be. It is touted as an immersive call for self-love that highlights the inherent beauty of all Black and brown children. So let's hear the author's insights. What inspired you to write that book at this time? Um, well, a, a couple of things. Well, the first thing is that my hope is that this book the message of this book, even though it features black and black and brown children, will be um, an inspiration for all children and and even adults. Um, it's a message about claiming the power to be who you are and the exploration of that process of self discovery as a journey. That it doesn't just stop. You just you know just you just don't define yourself as one thing. And that's it, that it's a it's an evolution. And I really wanted uh, kids first and foremost to kind of tap into that power and tap into the process. Because I think so many kids today are under so much pressure to do things correctly, to, you know, be this or be that. And I, you know, mm -hmm. that was the first thing. Um, as far as being very specifically targeted to African-American and other children of color, um, this book was started before all of the craziness of the pandemic and the George Floyd murders and things like that. Um, however, as this started happening, I think a lot of the um, racism and other issues that our society is dealing with um, bubbled up. Um, and so they were no longer hidden away. They were no longer, you know, politely uh, discussed or not discussed. And so I felt that in the midst of this kind of chaos and turmoil, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of it well-intentioned about race and racism and anti-racism. And this book also for me is for kids of color to center themselves, not in the issues that are surrounding themselves or surrounding our society, but in who they are um, so that we're not 
always, and I think we've talked about this in a previous episode, we're not always placing the burden of, you know, solving racism or talking about racism or, you know, all of those things that were being kind of placed on kids and, and on people in general. Um, that, you know, I know I'm kind of going off here, but but so that they could kind of, kids could kind of understand that they are who they are first and foremost, and that their responsibility is to themselves and not to teaching someone else about how to love them or how to accept them or tolerate them. And so I want to anchor kids in that sense of self, confidence of self, and that they take that out into the world um, wherever they are and, and with whomever they interact. That was kind of long and winding. <laughs> no, that's fine. And a powerful message. So the book was published in October of 21, but yes. you were, you had started writing it. I know how long it takes to write books. It's forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So you started writing it before the pandemic. How then did the pandemic or did it, did it or did it not shift your thinking, your message, where you went with the book? Well, the book was always going to be what it was. Um, and I and I thought, you know, when I first started writing for children, which was uh, my first book was I Love My Hair, um, even at that time, way back when in the late 90s, I was feeling that, you know, the messages that were being offered to Black kids, the depictions of Black kids and families were very limited, were very constricted. So we're dealing with the same kind of dynamics where, you know, there's a need for a broader range of stories. There's a need for um, an affirmation of not just, you know, you're great because, you know, you're, you know, people try to talk about your hair or your skin color and you don't have to worry about that or not that, that you don't have to worry about it, but to center it in yourself. Um, so that message was always there to explore your imagination, to explore your creativity. And so I think for with the pandemic, um, I was continuing to write through that time, but I felt that the book had even more resonance um, given the circumstances um, of that that period, that p- pandemic. That's a great word for it too. Yeah. Uh, and our listeners can certainly learn more about your books uh, and you at your website, natashatarpleywrites.com. And... Uh, For our listeners, if you haven't read I Love My Hair, then you need to, uh, no matter what age you are, and potentially read it to a young person. But also, if you Google it, there is a wonderful reading by Tiffany Haddish that's out there, right? Yeah, um, Netflix did this whole um, special about uh, that featured Black children's literature and read by celebrities and other authors. So Tiffany Haddish. Uh, read my book as part of that series. And I enjoyed listening to it. I'd read the book in print and I I loved listening to Tiffany. Now, in addition to your quote books, and I say that in quotes to represent our conventional idea of books with covers and pages, you've launched a podcasted book called Opal Watson, Private Eye, a mystery whose main character is a curious, brave and persistent 11 year old. So I listened. Wow, I'm hooked. What is it like for you to explore these different formats for sharing your writing with others? So 
In addition to being an author with a message, and, and my mission and message is to expand um, depiction of depictions of African American children and families to create stories that really showcase the range and diversity of our experiences and our stories. Um, I also have been writing since I was a seven-year-old, um, so I was seven years old, and so writing is a part of my life. It's a part of who I am, and it's always something that I'm exploring and growing. So on a personal level and a professional level, um, the podcast was an opportunity for me to take on a project in a kind of a new medium, a new form of writing that I had not uh, done before. So it's a, a podcast that is on uh, pinna.fm, which is a kids, a streaming kids audio platform. There are opportunities to, to listen to some episodes for free, but Pinna does is a subscription platform. So they have some great work. So I, I encourage everyone to subscribe. I'm certainly not advocating for you to do that or trying to pitch you to do that. But um, that is one way that you can listen to the, the series. And it features a African-American girl who's 11 years old from Chicago, um, who is a detective. And she also has a very special way of seeing the world because she has a visual impairment. So it's a very interesting twist on our typical uh, understanding of what a detective does and, and how they operate. And it's fascinating, and, and we can certainly plug Pinna, and that's P-I-N-N-A dot F-M, uh, because I like to advocate for all great organizations, products, books, et cetera. I mean, after all, we all depend on one another on these podcasts to, uh, to share, the, share the interesting news. Uh, so, and you right now have two episodes up, right? Actually, it's two seasons. Um, two seasons, so, I'm sorry. Yes, each season is 10 episodes. Um, and I just really enjoyed that. For me, it was a, a, a break from writing books, which is a little bit of a different process. The scripted writing process um, really allows you to have more immediacy as far as like, really getting into the dialogue. There's not as much of a requirement because other people are filling in the more descriptive aspects of, of the piece, such as the sound or the, you know, how things are, are organized structurally. So it was really fun to be able to just write as if I were having conversations um, or as if the characters were having conversations. And you don't really have to commit to bringing it to a certain close because you can always have another season. Absolutely. I mean, that's that that is the hope and the and and the blessing. But I mean, it doesn't always happen. I'm not sure if Opal's going to get a third season, but um, those two seasons were really fun, um, and I really enjoyed them. Well, it's great to look at the new the new look of uh, reading and books and learning through books, which is awesome. Now I'm going to take you back in time. An early book of yours is Testimony, Young African-Americans on Self-Discovery and Black Identity. Given it is Black History Month, I think it would be great for our listeners to hear about how you compiled this book and what you see as the difference in the Black experience from then, which was in the 90s, to now nearly 30 years later. Hmm. <laughs> Well, big, big, big question, not, right? I'm not this sure one you can go on and on for. <laughs> right. 
Um, so the story behind testimony is that, again, as I said, I've been writing since I was seven years old and writing is the way that I kind of explore the world, that I make connections with other people. So I get to college um, and I immediately, I went to Harvard undergrad. I got there and I was really searching for where I belonged. Um, I had I had gone to an elementary and high school uh, where we started a language very early on in second grade. So I'd been studying German from second grade up through high school and, and actually up through college. Um, and so when I got to college, I assumed that I was going to major in German. And also then I was taking creative writing classes. And the more I um, kind of got involved with the campus, the, the more lost I felt. Um, and so this was also a time when there were a lot of protests happening again, reflecting what's going on now, um, where you know students were protesting and advocating for the hiring of more black faculty, the hiring of more uh, women. And so some of these same issues you know, that we're dealing with now that was happening then. Um, Henry Louis Gates was just about to come to Harvard. He's been there now for many, many years. Um, and he was very instrumental in helping me to get testimony going. So essentially testimony is an anthology of writing by black college students from around the country. And it's kind of a snapshot of what was happening in the late eighties, early nineties, I'm dating myself now um, <laughs> with black students and black young black writers around the country. And this was my way of anchoring myself and finding a community or creating a community. And if you look through that book, um, I'm really honored that some of the writers, uh, many of the writers in that book have gone on to have stellar um, careers such as uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, there's an early piece of his in there. Um, Kevin Young, who's now the head of the African-American Museum, the Smithsonian African-American Museum. He's a poet, he has pieces in there. Um, Jelani Cobb, who is a commentator on, you know, all the networks and things like that. Mm -hmm. So all of these people who were exploring and beginning their writing careers, um, again, it's kind of like a snapshot of, of what they were doing at that early age. It, it, your statements remind me of um, one of my favorite documentaries, which is The Summer of Soul, which I'm a huge music fanatic. And in 1969, there was this major festival that went over six yeah. weeks in Harlem. Uh, I was 14 years old. It was a real call to action for Black America. And I was watching it the other night because they always televise it. Um, for, for those of you who don't know, you have to look it up, uh, The Summer of Soul. And essentially they had filmed everything, but then the films were just put away. Yeah. And it was, you know, almost 50 years later that they were resurrected and turned into this documentary. And so watching it is fascinating. But what struck me the other night when I watched it again was, wow, this is the same um, arguments, the same protests, the same complaints that we had 50 years ago. Yep. 
And so you're seeing the same thing that, so your book was written in the nineties and yet still today, still today we have to fight and protest. And at many of these same institutions and in the same fields, I mean, it's, it, it, it's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for writing that book. Cause that, that was uh, a little bit of a departure from the writings that you typically are known for. Absolutely. It was, again, it was an anthology. So I, I cannot claim authorship of all the work. It was a collective project and it was one that enabled me to make, uh, lasting friendships and, and connections uh, with young, uh, who were young writers at that time, but all of us who have continued to, to write and to, and to build careers, um, it was a, a real nexus um, and a point of uh, connection and community. Mm. And you had stated that uh, at one point you were a shy student and quote, reading helped me discover my own voice, end quote. That's a powerful message for students today who may not be inclined to speak up in class or may not feel like they have something to contribute. So tell me more about your path to discovering your own voice and the advice that you might offer young people and adults alike. Yeah, so um, I'm the oldest of four siblings. And so reading was not only the pathway to my own voice, but it was also my kind of escape from my younger siblings. So, <laughs> you know, one of my favorite things, my dad died very early when I was 12. So I didn't have him for much of my life. But one of the things that he did um, in my life was to take us to the library. And so that was a very formative experience because that was a space where, you know, we were just free to roam, to gather the books that we wanted to read. Um, and so that sense of freedom was was part of that process, you know, of reading. But then when you open the book and you got to go inside of a story and experience something that you'd never experienced or even something you may have experienced that someone else experienced as well that can make that connection. Um, and it just it just set off something in my brain. It just sparked that thing that made my brain start to 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 go and start to create its own, you know, my own stories and um, eventually, you know, writing those stories and, and sharing those stories and getting kind of an affirmation and a, I guess I would say validation for that from my family, from my teachers um, was a really formative part of, of my life. Um, and it helped me to gain the confidence um, if not to speak up in class, but again, going back to kind of the me I choose to be, to know myself in a different way and to kind of hold on to that kind of sense of confidence and strength that was, you know, building up inside of me as, as a result of, you know, discovering this new interest and passion and, and ability and so, you know, one of the things that I really do appreciate about where we are now, um, hopefully where we are, and Nancy, you know more about this than me, is that we're really paying more deliberate attention to the different ways that kids learn and the different ways that they um, express themselves or um, participate 
in community, in the classroom and things like that. And so I think now that we're, you know, making more space for kids who may not be the ones who are always raising their hands or who may not be the ones who are, you know, very comfortable speaking out, I think we're cultivating a, a, a space where kids can kind of find their own sense of confidence. And so I would say to any kid or um, any parent or teacher to really allow that child to be who they are. You know, I was always, you know, being told to speak up and that was the worst thing for me because, you know, all of my grade reports was like, oh, she should speak up. She should speak up. It's like <laughs> doing the work, but she should speak up. And I understood, you know, I understand now where it comes from, but I think, you know, we need to create spaces where kids can kind of be, be who they are and, and gently teach them these various skills if they need to, to, to speak or if they need to go to an interview or things like that. Um, we can certainly help them to do that. But, um, you know, I, I would encourage children themselves to, to, it's hard to feel comfortable when everyone else is, you know, talking and seems so at ease. Right, right. Just to understand that, you know, you have a gift too, that you are who you are. Um, and, and that is just as valuable as, as anybody else. And again, it's easier said than done, but. Well, the beauty of uh, technology and through the pandemic, a lot of schools put money into getting computing devices in the hands of students, especially because of the shift to uh, home-based instruction. The beauty of that technology is that if you are the student who doesn't necessarily speak up in class or, you know, other students are talking and you can't quite get yourself in there, technology allows us to create spaces for all students to engage through what we call silent blogs. And Mm -hmm. we've had teachers who will have a silent discussion where the students are just engaging online by adding their comments. And then everyone does get to speak, if you will, and hear one another. And it's just another way that technology allows us to reach more uh, different needs on the parts of students. Um, On the flip side, my concern as, as a result of the pandemic is that with this need to accelerate learning and and be in socially distanced environments, I'm seeing a lot more front of the room teaching where there is this thought that, well, first the teacher has to teach the lesson to everyone. And then as they're practicing, then they can get help. And I think that um, is a tragedy in American education right now. I can only speak for American education because I haven't been visiting classrooms around the world, but I do think we have to be careful to make sure that we don't lose that attention to every single student's individual differences. Yes, absolutely. So, and and I do think part of that is that your books belong in every classroom. Uh, You know, I'm an old young reader Mm -hmm. and I just just love them. Now, um, I I do want to shift away from your books for a minute because I heard in a podcast from last year that you did have a plan at once in your, one one time in your life to be part of Mm -hmm. a blog punk rock band. So do tell us about that. It's really not that interesting, but you know, like like you, I'm a a big music fan and have always been. And when I was, you know, in my tween years, went through a big punk rock phase and um, 
I really am grateful for the parents that I had because they were very open and very tolerant of all of the things that we wanted to explore. So I was walking around in combat boots and, you know, torn up army fatigues. And my dad was a- And was your hair like spiked with a lot of gel and pink maybe or- Absolutely. And, and my, um, my dad was a Chicago police officer. And so I had his old police leather jacket. And, oh, nice. <laughs> and so I decided, and I cultivated a British accent and all the whole thing that I was going to be a black. Um, well, it wasn't really, I didn't think of it as a black punk rocker, but I was going to be a, a punk rock um, superstar. I was going to have a band and whenever I went to the mall, people were going to come up to me and ask for my autograph. And I played out these scenarios again, very vivid imagination Mm. in my mind. I even wrote to the queen of England and asked, you know, well, how can I become a British citizen? Because at that time, all the British bands were, you know, big in the, the, the punk rock and alternative music. So I figured I had to go to England and they had a big punk scene going on. Um, and I even had, uh, I even practiced my signature, which is kind of funny because now I do sign a lot of things. <laughs> so but at that time, you. it was for autograph purposes uh, for all the fans that would come up to me in the mall. <laughs> That's a, now, what caused you to move away from that? Well, one, I had no musical talent. <laughs> well, that, that was, that was a primary thing. Um, and I, and I started writing and I, and I found my voice again, um, sort of more in that space than in the musical space. Although I will tell you when I was in high school, my family moved to Boston and I made a couple of friends who did play instruments and we did actually attempt to form a band. And that was another indication to me that no, (laughs) This is not not the path for you because I just just wasn't there. As much as I love music, I am not a musician. That's a great little tidbit to know about you. (laughs) Now, I know you've also taken up marathon running. So uh, do you write in your head while you run? I'm always writing in my head, but uh, marathon running is for me the opposite of of doing that. It's, It's a way of emptying my head and kind of getting into a space of just, you know, I don't know how to, you know, it, it's like one a meditation. After the other. Yeah. It's like a meditation. And, and like mm-hmm. you said, one foot, it's a way to focus on something, you know, that's very tangible. And then once you finish, it's a very, um, it, it's a sense of accomplishment, you know, and it's, um, it's the thing itself. It's, it doesn't go on and on like a book. It doesn't, you know, I'm not asking questions about it. The only question is like, how am I going to get through these next miles? But um, to me, running is sort of a a meditation. And I had a really cool uh, coach who started me off when I moved to my neighborhood where I live now in Chicago, um, which is on the far South side of Chicago, there's a park nearby and there are there were at that time a group of older runners and walkers uh black runners and, and walkers and i was running in the park and 
just started talking to these uh, to these older people and found out that so many of them were accomplished athletes in and of themselves. They had run 60, 70, 100 marathons, done, you know, the Ironman triathlons and started um, running organizations, some of the early running organizations in Chicago and were some of the first people to run the Chicago Marathon. I mean, it was just a treasure trove of information. So running also to me has that kind of legacy element, um, you know, and really wanting to honor those people who who taught me and and who made a difference and a contribution to to our running history here in, in the city. Well, it's it's great to hear a little about the uh, author behind all of those wonderful yeah. characters that we get to read about. Um, so, okay, let's unwrap the learning. Through your writing, what would you say is the next big message you want to share with the world? Oh, wow. <laughs> what will Natasha be writing about next? Uh, well, I'm still personally uh, and professionally still exploring Um looking at doing another podcast project. I'm very interested in making more global connections. So using my work to connect people throughout the diaspora, uh, African diaspora, um, dipping my toes into television, writing for children. So I've got a, and, and a few new book projects. Uh, I just sold another book series, a supernatural middle grade series and a spinoff series uh, based on I Love My Hair. So it's not a hair series, but it takes that character from I Love My Hair and just showcases her as a little girl you know, and her family and her everyday life and experiences. Um, as far as those. Yeah, the the first one of the I Love My Hair uh, spinoff, it's called I Love My Family. It will be out in December of this year. Soon, okay. Soon. Um, But as far as the big learning, I I really, my hope for my books and stories is that it will spark um, some inspiration within the reader to tell their own story, to acknowledge and celebrate who they are, um, and to bring that sense of confidence and creativity into the world um, and not allow other people to kind of define um, who and what you are and what your potential is uh, Mm -hmm. in the world. And it just feels like that is certainly the message uh, in your latest book. The Definitely. me I choose to be. Absolutely. That's wonderful. And uh, and to talk a little bit about the, the uh, photographers that you teamed up with there. Um, Regis and Karen Bethencourt, um, also known as Creative Soul Photography, have been doing these just fantastic, imaginative, um, just wonderful portraits of Black children for many years. I knew of them before we... Um, collaborated on this this project. Um, And so they've been doing this work. And one of the interesting things that I learned through working with them is that, you know, they go out and they find models, you know, families 
will hire them to take a portrait of their children, um, but that the children themselves participate in the process of figuring out how they want to be depicted. So it was, it's absolutely fitting with that message of, you know, kind of tapping into who you are and making your own, the power to choose who you are, you know, literally in the, the photographs, you know, so many of the children had a, had a say in how they wanted to be photographed and in their costumes and things like that. So that was really wonderful to, to learn. So that's the me I choose to be. Everybody should run out and buy it right now. And there are so many places to find out more about Natasha's work and so many sites that you're involved with. But if you go to natashatarpleywrites.com, you'll be able to get everywhere else from there. So Natasha, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be able to have uh, interviewed you today for this podcast. It was great to see you again. I know that you were on my uh, internet TV show, Learning Unwrapped, a while back. Yes. People can go and search that out at nancysula.com if they want to go back and, and watch that. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Well, that's a wrap. I'm glad you could join me. I hope you'll subscribe, like, and share this podcast and help me spread the word about the power of learning. Till next time.